welcome to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, a long-expected party celebrating the Lord of the Rings films nigh 20 years hence. Usually we work through the films one scene at a time, but this is some other devilry. The story of Middle-earth is deeply tied to the bonds of fellowship our characters hold, and we want to do episodes that allow us to delve greedily into them to show their quality. Excuse me. That man in the corner. Who is he? He's one of them rangers. Dangerous folk they are wandering the wild. What his right name is, I've never heard, but round here, he's known as Strider. Strider. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm Emily, also known as JR tweeting, if Twitter is still held by the time this comes out. <laughs> uh, you can also search for Robespierre, I guess. Oh, Wait, yeah. no, sorry, you don't want that. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Search Robespierre on Blue Sky, go ape shit. <laughs> Today's episode is The Sword That Was Broken, our Strider Sode, which I guess, <laughs> do not confuse with A Blade That Shatters, our episode <laughs> on Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom. <laughs> Uh, so if you're looking for Zelda talk, that's the other title with <laughs> a broken sword in its name. Whoops. God, I love doing podcasts. <laughs> Our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough. And we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. Our only announcement for this is for you format sickos out there who would know that normally in our character episodes, we do a race history. Uh, but since we've already talked about the race of men a couple of times, specifically those uh, descended from Numenor, um, we would like to point you towards our seventh episode, A Knife in the Dark, and episode 11, The Horn of Gondor. Those are about Weathertop and Boromir, respectively, and we do our full kind of Numenorean history there. Um, so if you're looking for that piece of Aragorn backstory, I will refer you to that. I'm almost certain there was a bit that I probably skipped in one of those where I was like, we'll cover this in the Aragorn episode, and then it's never going to get covered, <laughs> so haha. <laughs> This is the day I've been waiting for for so long, and I'm so happy and excited to be here and sharing this all with you in this moment. And I'm going to try and be really nice and friendly about it because then I'm going to unleash uh, in about five minutes. And then you have to respect me and treat my unhinged uh, opinions as fully legitimate because I was slightly sane for five minutes. So uh, Aragorn, 
he's a lad. Um, he is so like one of the things that I want to kind of preface for all of this chat about Book Aragorn and and like his place in in kind of Tolkien's wider body of work and like the 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 history of the development of the character is that like he's not really meant to be a character that you either like relate heavily to or like are particularly keen on knowing more about. So like while I am gonna kind of rip the best out of him for being fairly bare bones um that is definitely like a function thing that that's a that's a that's a feature not a bug um so yes so so that kind of disclaimer out of the way um aragorn has a kind of interesting start um and i say interesting i mean not at all interesting he's he's this very sort of traditional hero um he is born the son of a king um and a mother we know almost nothing about um she does have the epithet the fair uh so for the feminists in the audience i wonder how she got that one Surely it must have been some amazing feat of valor to have been Gilrain the Fair. Uh, haha. Uh, no, obviously not. Um, we know basically nothing else about her besides that, except that there was like maybe this push and pull about whether or not she was um, allowed by her father to marry Arathorn because there's prophecy about Arathorn dying early, which, ha, uh, amazing. He did, in fact, die early. Whatever. Not a huge amount about her. Not a huge amount about um, Aragorn's first two years of life until uh, until his father gets murked by an orc, uh, takes an arrow to the eye. Um, and um, on Arathorn's death, um, Gilrain uh, flees from from Arnor um, to, in keeping with the tradition of the Duna Nine of the North, to, to take um, little baby Aragorn to be fostered by uh, Elrond of, of Rivendell. And this is a tradition that the the, the chieftains of Arnor have, have held to for um, a the better part of a millennia, um, they have always, in keeping with the fact that they are the sort of heirs um, or, or descendants of <coughs> of um, uh, of Elendil um, and um, of Alros in turn, um, they they always sort of send their sons, their their eldest sons, to go be trained up in lordship and and general good vibes by by Elrond and Rivendell, which is of course I'm sure like not at all a deeply traumatic thing for for Elrond who has to routinely experience his effective sons dying over and over and over while he lives uh but we won't get too far into that just yet the politics of mortality will come in slightly later um one other fun thing about aragorn is that um by virtue of the role he is meant to fulfill in 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 the books um there are all of these prophecies about him um some of them are very clearly about uh aragorn and some of them uh maybe required a bit of a guiding hand um one of these prophecies is that um uh, Gandalf and having in coming to Middle Earth brought with him a gem, um, and this gem is called uh, LSR or the Elfstone, um, and he gives this gem to um, to Galadriel of Lothlorien and says that um, she will one day pass this on to someone who will also be called Elfstone, um, and that this this person will um, become a king, um, and that is of course exactly what happens. The Elfstone passes from Galadriel to Aragorn. Um, and Aragorn later takes that up, LSR and Quenya as his Ragnall name. Uh, whether that necessarily had to be Aragorn, <laughs> meh, probably not. <laughs> probably just a bit of a uh, Gandalf finding an opportune moment to do some shenanigans and being like, "See, I predicted it." Um, but you know, it, it's one of these things where when you have a very sort of service-oriented workaday character like Aragorn, Tolkien can do. Um. At uh, Rivendell, uh, two-year-old Aragorn is um, 
bereft of his name. Um, and instead of Aragorn, he is given the name Astel, which means hope in Sindarin. And and there, I think this is kind of flimsy, but but in in the books, it is said to be a, a, basically a security measure. They want to hide his identity. And I don't really hold with this. I think this is kind of a ridiculous excuse because Elrond's name is certainly a more powerful and more influential and by extension, more dangerous one um, than Aragorn. And Elrond never uses a pseudonym he's always just balls out El- elrond um so fine you know it does give like aragorn a bit of mystique um so i can't fault tolkien for that but you know it's a bit weak yeah um i have nothing to say about any of that but it is making me think of aragorn and elrond scene in return of the king uh where he delivers the sword that was broken reforged i guess um and he's basically i bring i, I give hope to mankind and Aragorn's like, I keep none for myself if I think I'm remembering yep. the dialogue correctly. Yep. Um, and that kind of ends up being a fun little play on his name, I guess. Yes. Um, so um, I really like that bit. I don't know. I can't remember uh, how much of that is drawn directly from the text, but I like that little play in the film. Yeah, it's it's Gilrain's headstone, actually, is... Um it's translated effectively. I gave the world hope and kept none for myself with playing on Astel, um, meaning hope. So yeah, that is totally from, from the books. And oh, fantastic. One of these grim things about Tolkien's women. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that actually, that scene as well, that presentation of the shards of Narsil, the Ring of Barra here is not included in that. Um, that's also from the text, although vastly earlier, um, because when Aragorn turns 21, mm-hmm. um, Elrond bestows upon him the sort of gifts of his birth. So that's the Ring of Barra here, um, which in the extended editions of the films, you see Grima identifying Aragorn by it's the the snakes on the ring. Um, and then the Shards of Narsil, of course, um, which is the, the blade that was broken. And these are presented to Aragorn at his 21st birthday, along with his name. Um, he is revealed to be Aragorn, not Astel. Um, I like to think about this in terms of what I was doing on my 21st birthday, which was getting 21 shots of Sambuca and then vomiting in an alley. (laughs) Um, But I am just better than Aragorn in all imaginable ways. So can't hold that one against him. If it makes you feel better, I also vomited a lot, but it was Jack Daniels on my 21st birthday. Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I suppose in some respects, Aragorn is probably delighted that he was not having a traditional 21st birthday because the day after um, he turns 21, he dresses himself up like Baron and meets Arwen in a glade in Rivendell. And this is the first time she lays eyes on him and he lays eyes on her. And, oh, I suppose they fall in love uh, or do they? Um, I have a much harsher take on this that I'm going to hold in reserve for now. When you say he dressed like Baron, <laughs> is this like a intentional cosplay? Or is it like, oh, here are some old rags I'll put on, and it turns out to be like the tunic of time, like in Legend of <laughs> Zelda, where it ends up being like some sacred or ancient uh, artifact? <laughs> Um, no, it is Galadriel dresses him up like Baron and like spins him around and then sends him into the glade and is like, good luck. <laughs> so it's like oh, it's- one of these things, many, many moments in Aragorn's life where like people around him are pulling strings to try and fit him into one specific mold um, and end up doing some weird, weird shit like cosplaying their girlfriend's great grandfather. So it's kind of like Galadriel is Miss Havisham and Aragorn is Pip and she's trying to dress him up like that. I think that's exactly. that's what I'm going to think of it as now. Oh my God, that's exactly it. Great. Galadriel is Miss Havisham. That's the, I'm going down with that one. All right, please continue. <laughs> 
Wow, holy shit. I'm impressed by that one. Um, yeah, so Aragorn, 21, riding high on a new name, a shitty sword, um, a ring of vanishingly little meeting, and a hot new girlfriend. <laughs> uh, now it takes up his title as the chieftain of the Dúnedain of the North, uh, the, the chieftain of the men of Arnor, although most of the men of Arnor, um, numerically standing largely in Bree, have no fucking clue who he is and instead choose to call him Strider. Ha ha. Um, after he does this, he goes off and goes hither and thither doing various tasks and activities that are so cool and important that they are, could not possibly be described in any detail by J.R.R. Tolkien, but definitely trust him. They were so cool. You should absolutely trust that they were cool. Don't ask any more questions about what Aragorn was up to. It is during this period that he becomes acquainted with Gandalf, <laughs> um, who, which is like literally the most important relationship in, in Aragorn's life, I would argue, far more so than than even his relationship to Elrond or to, to Arwen. It is his relationship to Gandalf that ultimately sees him su- succeed the throne of um, uh, uh, of Gondor and Arnor. It sees him uh, be the one to to helm the, the quest for the ring. Um, it is, if there is one man who's really doing that, like House of Cards esque um, tinkering in the background of the politics of Middle Earth in this era is Gandalf, and and Aragorn makes a very good deal by by jumping into bed with him, um, and so so that happens one day, um, and as part of this sort of like course of, uh, of counsel that Gandalf provides, he's basically like a consultant. I think you could probably think of them at this point as like Gandalf as McKinsey. Um, <laughs> McKinsey scale, if you will. Um, and Gandalf is like, go make yourself familiar with the Shire. Um, and so Aragorn does indeed do this. Um, at a distance, he familiarizes himself with these little folk we call the Hobbits um, and hangs around there for about a decade. Um, he does eventually get bored of the Michael Dalving Bree run, which I should point out takes only 20 minutes on a horse in Latro, so he's bitching about nothing and should really have just fucking dealt with it. Um, but he decides to kick off and search uh, uh, for fame and glory, as we all do when we're 31 years old, apparently. Um, he makes his first stop, as so many of us do, in the Rittermark, uh, where he serves Thengel, the father of Theoden, um, and also notably a kind of cantankerous asshole. Um, and he, in Rohan, uh, makes a name for himself once again doing stuff and things. Please don't press on what these stuff and things are, because nobody's going to answer that question, but they're definitely worth, worthy of being a king. About two years later, he decides that Rohan is beneath him and so goes off to Gondor like a teenager bouncing off from a starter boyfriend. <laughs> um, and in Gondor, he takes up the nom de guerre Therongil, which means Eagle of the Star. Um, I've talked about this name at length in previous episodes, so I'm just not going to retread it here. It is like, I think he's a dick, but whatever, there it is. Um, in Gondor, he serves the steward Ecthalion, Ecthalion II, um, and actually does some documented shit that I will go out on a limb here and say doesn't really do him any favors in the future, but is cool in the moment. Um, chief among these is that he becomes a key rival to Denethor, Ecthalion's only son. Tolkien actually does me specifically a favor by noting that the rivalry between Aragorn and Denethor probably kicked off because Denethor figured out Aragorn's secret identity and suspected that Aragorn and Gandalf were working to supplant Denethor, not just as ruler of Gondor, but also as Ecthelion's best love son. Ouch. Was he wrong? Mm, Listeners, that's up to you. No, it isn't. He was not wrong. Denethor was right and Aragorn should go do one. 
Anyways, uh, obviously more privy to more privilege and a better rapport with Ecthalion than Denethor. Aragorn was given the task of taking several ships. Don't forget that at one point, both Gondor and the wider Numenorean diaspora were a really important naval maritime empire in, in Middle-earth. This is that kind of last dying legacy of it. And Aragorn proving himself as a mariner, as as a ship king, if you will, um, is is very crucial to his de- development, both like as a character in a very sort of personal sense, but also as his as a character in a Tolkienian sense. Anyways, he takes a whole bunch of ships and goes down to Umbar, where he forces back the Corsair or pirate incursion. This is a big deal. This makes him instantly a legend. Uh, he immediately overshadows Denethor, who should have been the guy to have done that and was instead not. Um, and possibly showing the only bit of tact Aragorn ever shows in the books, uh, Aragorn decides not to come back to Gondor and do his victory lap. Instead, he sends word from Pelargir that he is going henceforth into the world and will uh figure out what he's going to do then and there. Uh, This is another one of these moments where we get a very artful dot, 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 and are just sort of meant to fill in the gaps on what cool shit Aragorn was doing. Um, We do have a bit of a sense that he probably went to the very, very far east and Rune, and also even further south into Harad, but nothing documented, like nothing very concrete to go on. So he was probably there. Maybe we're not getting any cell phone pings off the towers, though. Um, in 2980, about 40 years, mind you, Aragorn is old as balls, about 40 years before the start of the Ring War, um, Aragorn returns to Lothlorien, where he meets with Arwen, and together they plight their troth on the hill at Karen Amroth. Uh, Elrond, who is now entering the story again, and who was also presumably a little concerned about the sheer number of his family members who were abandoning him for the prison of mortality, tells Aragorn that Arwen will not wed anyone less than the king of Gondor and Arnor. Fans online have compared this gauntlet casting to Thingol demanding that Baron retrieve a Silmaril from Morgoth's crown before he was allowed to marry Luthien. Not Luthen, <laughs> Luthien. To which I say, shut the <laughs> fuck up. That is way harder than just becoming king. Nevertheless, Aragorn jumps right to this task by pissing about in the woods for about 40 years, up until Gandalf seeks him out and asks him for his help in searching for that little rat bastard Kino Loy, a quest which will inevitably <laughs> take him to the House of Elrond at 10 o'clock in the morning on October the 24th. The rest, they say, is history. Uh, I don't want to get too far into our movie discussion yet, but the funny thing is how little of this is in the films. Yeah. Um, insofar as even some of the stuff that is in the films tends to be in the extended edition, like especially like Aragorn's age and that he fought with Theoden's father. Like that is definitely an extended editions only thing. So maybe the first time going into these movies and not knowing any of this, it almost felt like Aragorn was like a long or Strider rather was like a long-term sleeper agent who didn't have like 200 years or like rather 80 years of like deeds to his name already. However vague (laughs) or detailed they were in Tolkien's work, it kind of felt like all the great stuff he did was basically kind of in the movies that we saw, um, not really making any judgment on that, but that's kind of how it came off the first time. Yeah. Like this, these are the moments that made Aragorn where it feels like what you just described is a character that's kind of already been made by his circumstances, his life, his experiences, whatever. And that the war of the ring is just another thing on top of that. Yeah. Even if it's his greatest thing, potentially. No, no, no. I think that's totally reasonable. And I actually, I, I think that is, is true of both the movies and of the books. Um, I, I think the, the image that we are meant to, to sort of have of Aragorn in the books is that like, 
this detail is is there like he he is probably someone with a story behind him um but it, that story is not really well enunciated and and most of the that stuff that i've outlined actually comes from the appendices um so it's not like this is something that in in the actual sort of hard text of, of the story um it's not like this is something that, that is really like they're just sort of bubbling around the edges it, it this is you're really having to like sort of plumb the depths here um I think there's sort of parts of it where, like, you know, there's a couple things happening. Like, one, I think the the not omission because I don't think that's fully fair, but like the the lack of um the or the sense that like that like you're saying, you know, the activities of Aragorn's life are really happening on screen. Um, that is, I think, um, part of the movies. Like, one, it's just part of how cinema works. Like, we tend to want to see the interesting parts of people's lives on screen, and I think like the movies really, really wanted Aragorn to be, if not the main character. Um, one of the main characters in a way that he's not really quite so much in in the books in the same way. Um, they wanted Aragorn to be like the character that the audience related to, whereas he's definitely not that in the books. Um, and so like a lot of that, this the whole world is finally starting to happen. Aragorn stuff that you get in the movies, like that's part of, you know, how the, the movie set out to tell that story. In the books, like there is a sense that um, that we don't know a huge amount about Aragorn at any point, but we are meant to understand that that comes from a place of like our as the reader, um, like our relative um, uh, servitude compared to or like or like um, um, underling status, I guess, compared to Aragorn, which is that like, you know, Aragorn's backstory is on a need to know basis and we're just the kind of subjects we we don't need to know. And we should just trust, have faith in in the the sort of grandeur of his name and of his deeds that because people like Elrond and people like Gandalf say that he's actually a cool guy who does cool shit, we should just take that at face value and and we don't really need to like investigate that any further independently. We should just have that like that ultimate kind of that faith. Um that faith in the monarch, that faith in 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 leadership and those who lord over us. Um but then there's also this kind of third part which I think ties into like the the the, the metatextual history of Aragorn as a character, which is like Aragorn is not a very well planned out character. Um, of course, I should note here that like the Lord of the Rings as a story, also not particularly well planned out. Like um, Tolkien only starts <laughs> writing it once the cash starts rolling in from the Hobbit, and he goes, "Oh shit, I could make bank again." Um, so it's not like this is this sort of great um, um, oof that's that's sort of waiting in the wings of of Tolkien's entire life in, in quite the same way as the stories of like the Silmarillion, which are the things that he spent all of this time working on. Um, but but Aragorn even more so compared to the rest of the Lord of the Rings, is a very kind of cobbled together character. Um, like that that quote that I love about, um, you know, Faramir emerging from the forest um, un, uninvited um, to, to join the story um, with Frodo and, and Sam and Athelion. Um, uh, Tolkien also talks about the this, this sort of in, invention of Aragorn as he's writing about the Prancing Pony and Bree, and suddenly there's this man in the corner, and this man in the corner is very important, and... Um, oh, and actually, now that he writes more and more about him, actually, he's probably a king of, of the olden days, and, and he's actually probably someone with a far grander story than what sitting in the corner, you know, half cast in shadow would would otherwise make you think. And, and you know, there's a lovely sort of sense of, like, activity and, and uh, like, you know, breath to, to the imagination that... Um, Tolkien expresses there, you know, it really makes you you think that he was, you know, merely documenting the 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 wonderful stories that were in his head, and and of course that is true to an extent. It's also a nicely edited version of what the actual reality of it was, which is that originally, <laughs> um, 
Strider, um, Aragorn, was intended to be a hobbit named Trotter who had wooden feet because he went to Mordor and was tortured out of his feet. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> slightly different to what we got. Um, Trotter did become Strider, uh, and I have no doubt that in writing that that scene in The Prancing Pony, which I'm sure we can all imagine in our heads is the, the one in uh, in the movies, um, you know, as that that character was written out as Strider, um, and all of these kind of, the sense of this this ancientry that 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 backed up who this character in the corner was. Aragorn grew into something greater, but but that's actually quite quite far into the drafting process, um, and and um, so that puts us in like 1942, 1943, um, it, it, for a book that was finished in 1945. So quite late. Um, <laughs> um, one of the other kind of interesting parts about this is that like in this kind of um, uh, hodge modgepodge that is Aragorn. Um, it's really important that, that, that we remember that, like, Aragorn is kind of Christ-like, but he's not meant to be Christ. He's certainly not meant to be the Christ of the story. And, and Tolkien himself was actually quite pissed off that, like, the title Return of the King was selected for the book because he thought it made it too Christological. He thought that it, it imbued too much of a, of a, of a Christ-like um, aura on, on Aragorn, a character who was meant to be kingly certainly, but was not meant to be Christ. Um, and, and this is, I think, like, one of these things where, like, you know, I, I like to go, he's not Christ. He's just, he's just not Christ. But, but also, he's kind of a little bit Christ. <laughs> like, and, and, like, he kind of is. And, like, this is another one of these things where, like, we're really seeing Tolkien battling in some ways against his, like, desire to be, um, to be faithful and, and to be a devout and good Catholic um, who does not do any sort of idolatry, um, and also his need to be a monarchist. Um, and I, and there are lots of, you know, Catholic theologians who, who will argue that it is, uh, a direct contravention of a, like a true Catholic faith to be a monarchist. Um, that is is idolatry in the clearest form because the only king that you should uphold is God. Um, and, and all of these false kings on earth are just leading you astray. Um, and that's that's actually like a very common strand of Republican Catholicism. Um, Tolkien had no interest in republicanism. He was obviously a staunch monarchist. So you see him go like, well, all kings should be like Christ. Um, and Aragorn is a king, but he's definitely not Christ. But he's definitely Christ-like, but he's not Christ. So don't sweat it. And that line, that the blurriness of that line is, I think, like a is is a really big kind of gash, I suppose, in in Aragorn's character history, both like in in the internal um, lore and also on the metatextual level. Um, is this battle between like is Aragorn Christ? Is he not? Um, the key difference between Christ and um, Aragorn, uh, and I say key with a hint of irony here because obviously one was <laughs> real and the other is not. Um, is that Aragorn doesn't suffer um, in the same way that uh, that 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 Christ did? Um, obviously, the important part of the Christ myth is the is that he takes on the sins of mankind and suffers for them, and in so doing, um, earns um uh salvation for a man um he goes to you know the the garden of Gethsemane and sees all of the sins of mankind and still chooses to do that all of these things are important Aragorn doesn't really do this shit he just kind of shows up and is like right it's my time to go um and that's that's like that really fundamentally is why Aragorn can never fully be Christ-like is he just doesn't he just doesn't really suffer that much like he's a little sad but like we all are <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I have nothing to add to that, but I do have 
my eyes on this Taylor Swift Tom Hiddleston comparison you have in the notes here. <laughs> yes. So, 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 um, I hinted up top that I think that um, Aragorn and Arwen's romance is, let's say not as authentic as I think it is. Certainly not as authentic as is portrayed in the movie. That that I think goes without saying, but like not as um authentic as I think it is maybe um interpreted by by fans. Um and it's not to say that like I think they're interpreting it wrong. I just think that like um I think that there if you have a, a sense of sort of how historical marriage worked and and certainly medieval um courtly love worked um, you will get a sense that, like, the Aragorn and Arwen romance, chiefly told through the appendix, um, uh, tale of Ar- appendix B, the, the, the tale of Aragorn and Arwen, um, you, you get a sense that it's a bit propaganda-y, um, in that, like, there's a huge amount of value on an emotional and psychological level to be like, look at our rulers. They are deeply in love with one another. Um, and when these things fall apart, and I have to be careful about what I'm saying here, you get a bit of a crisis of, the public legitimacy in the monarchy. Um, I will point to and not make anything that could get me thrown in jail, uh, any remarks that could get me thrown in jail, but like take a look at Britain um, and what happened in the 1980s and 90s with Diana and Charles, uh, now King Charles. Um, Diana was obviously the better liked of the two. And when it was a fairy tale romance that she had with Charles, there was a really good degree of public faith and interest in the monarchy. And when that fairy tale romance shattered it all started to crumble a bit and 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 in many ways the monarchy the british monarchy has never really recovered its reputation since the diana issue the diana affair um and even now is really really struggling um and so if you are a ruler um say a recently returned ruler with not a huge amount of legitimacy in your main population centers being able to be like hey, look at this marriage that I've got. Isn't this wonderful? Look at how this totally upholds to all of the rules of courtly love. Aren't we just the best thing ever? That's a great propaganda win. Like, that makes you look really cool <laughs> and really great. Um, but if you think about who these two characters are, um, Aragorn in the main, um, this figure who is always meant to fit into someone else's shoes, whether it is a Sealder's or a Lendil's, um, or even in some senses, barons. Um, he is he is a guy who's always meant to be other guys. Um, he's never really just meant to be Aragorn. Um, that has to be quite a psychological hit. You are really never meant to be yourself. And then you've got Arwen. Um, and Arwen is a really fascinating case because her mother, Calibrian, um, is the daughter of Galadriel and Celeborn. That is about as pedigreed as you could possibly be in Middle Earth. Her grandmother is Galadriel, um, who comes from the House of Finarfin, one of the greatest houses of the elves, uh, the High Elves of the Noldor. Um, her her grand or her grandfather is uh, Celeborn, again, the Lord of Lothlorien, one of the most important people you could possibly be in Middle Earth. Her father is Elrond, who who has a connection um, to quite seriously every important noble house in in Middle Earth. Um, everyone from um, uh, from uh, well, everyone. I, I can't even I, like if I start listing, I'll never stop. But everyone, Elrond has a connection to everyone. He's also the Lord of Revendal. He is one of the most important sort of lords um, um, barricading uh, the darkness out of the east. Um, he is the person to be. Um, her grandparents on all sides are the people to be. Um, and she is always compared to Luthien. Um, her beauty is not her mother's beauty, which is like said to be this fair and sort of light 
beauty is is the dark and sort of otherworldly ethereal beauty of of Luthien and she is she is first described as being Luthien in the books there there is there is this shadow that hangs over Arwen that prevents Arwen from becoming a fully realized person and and that shadow is her great grandmother Luthien um and so in even in how they meet with Galadriel dressing up Aragorn like Baron there's this opportunity for these two people who have been thus far um, deprived of the the ability to distinguish themselves on their own terms or to really develop and be personalities and people in, in their own ways. There's a way for them to sort of ultimately fulfill what everybody is asking of them. Um, Aragorn gets to be Baron for real. Um, he gets to have his Luthien. Um, he gets to be the king of Gondor and Arnor and to do so with a, with a, a Peredel half-elven wife. And Arwen finally gets to be Luthien. And, and unlike Luthien, she will actually be the queen of a, of a realm, of a land. Um, and, and her story will possibly not end in tragedy, although as I will point out in, in Appendix B, it does end in tragedy. And there's a sense that Arwen actually probably did come to regret her decision for, for mortality <laughs> when she dies alone and miserable. Um, I think there's a bit of a PR gambit here, which is that like everybody around realizes that they need to reestablish Gondor. Um, and they need it to be something that succeeds because it has to be this bulwark against Mordor. Um, and everyone realizes that they kind of have to, you know, riz up baby Gronk, who is Aragorn um, in this. Um, and to do so, they kind of have to promise Arwen. And Arwen kind of needs something to be herself because she's got nothing else going for her. Um, and so they end up in this kind of what I would say is basically Middle Earth's greatest PR relationship, or in other words, Taylor Swift and Tom Hiddleston. <laughs> <laughs> you you brought it back around. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> um, so all that's what I'm taking away is that Aragorn isn't particularly an interesting character or one that Tolkien is concerned with. No. What's your thoughts on that? No, I mean, basically not. Like, I, I think one of the things that like is important, again, because the movies do him, uh, they give him an upgrade and that they make him vastly more relatable. And so much of that is down to like Vigo being Vigo as well. Like, I don't think there's anything necessarily in the script to like make Aragorn a fount of charisma um, in the way that he is. But like Tolkien doesn't write shit about him. Like there are like a occasional <laughs> scribblings, but there's also like occasional scribblings about like every single one of Sam and Rosie's kids. Like everybody gets like a couple pages, <laughs> but like, Aragorn, in terms of where he sits in the narrative of the Lord of the Rings, should be like one of the big dogs. And instead, he really doesn't ever get that much more attention from Tolkien once he's done. He is this like very, as I keep saying, this service oriented character. He is here to fulfill a role, which is to be the king that has come or the king that is coming. Um, he is here to kind of drive this connection between men and elves and, and old and past and present up until we get to, to Athelion. And then Faramir comes in and, and plays that role, I would say, um, with a lot more sort of interest from Tolkien. Um, and then Aragorn just kind of gets to be this like um, ambient future. Um, this this kind of aimless but generally positive future. Um, and that's it. And Tolkien himself does not really dedicate very much more time to writing about him, especially when you compare him with um, some of the, the bad examples of kingship, um, like Feanor um, from the Silmarillion. And, you know, all these, 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 these men who go astray, who are led astray, who do morally dubious things as kings and rulers in the Silmarillion get like reams written about them. And Aragorn, who is this perfect example of a king, gets shit all. Um, and I think that's kind of important like as you think about Aragorn and that like he's not really meant to be anything more than what he is and so it's hard to hold him to that threshold of all of the other characters because he's really just mean to, meant to be a get in get out do the job don't really think too hard about it kind of guy 
after the war. In the words of J.R.R. Tolkien, after the war, there was lots of sucking and fucking. Um, Aragorn has like six kids with Arwen. It's not, it's like four, I think. Um, a whole bunch of them are daughters. And then there is the son, Eldarion, which means uh, the Lord of the Elves, uh, Lordly Son of the Elves, whatever. Um, Eldarion later becomes king. Uh, Aragorn does a really cool guy thing, which is after proclaiming the peace of Middle-earth and, and um, setting up all of these treaties with chiefly Harad, um, he immediately turns around and goes and does a whole bunch of wars of conquest. And he and Eomer, um, as the king of Rohan, um, ride out into Rune and reclaim in what we may be able to call a Reconquista. Uh, they reclaim the, the lands of the East. Um, it is a crusade. It is obviously and clearly a crusade. So like the politics of this are worrying at best. Um, but Aragorn is basically the guy who ties this shit up and does the, like, good empire stuff that J.R.R. Tolkien was concerned with. And even though, like, we get this beautiful treatise and, uh, two towers about, um, uh, a queen among many queens, um, for Minas Tirith and, and the importance of not being, um, this sort of imperial darkness, Aragorn goes off and does all that shit, um, and then dies. Um, and dies at the age of like 210 and leaves Arwen uh, to wander the earth miserable about her decision. And then she goes and dies in Lothorian alone without her friends, without her family, without her father, without her mother, who will never see her again. Uh, all of these lovely, cheerful things. Um, and Eldarion then becomes the king. And this is only really important or noteworthy because Tolkien tried to write a book um, called The Last Shadow about Eldarion's reign in the Fourth Age um, and got about 30 pages into it, which you can read. It is, it is part of the, the History of Middle-Earth series. Um, he got about 30 pages into it and went, damn, this shit is boring and gave up. He was like, it's too depressing and too sad to write about like men falling into the petty politics of, of the sort of temporal realm after all of the that which is interesting has kind of come to a close uh, and he gave up um, and he stopped writing about it. But like that, that inclination was there. Um, and, and that's really it. I think that, you know, the, the thing that I find interesting is that like in this holy war um, against um, Sauron um, and, and for the sort of reconstitution of Gondor and Arnor, um, Tolkien does not envision Aragorn as having been this ultimate savior of mankind. There is not a utopia at the end of this. It actually just kind of becomes really fucking mundane. Um, and that's boring to Tolkien, who has no interest in writing sort of a song of ice and fiery type things, um, which is fine. Um, like, he just kind of stops writing. Um, but I think it is really interesting that this kind of end point of this quest for the ideal king, even for Tolkien, who is desperately trying to theorize this ideal king, ultimately just comes down to shit's going to get really boring and you're going to have to spend a lot of time doing things that are a bit petty and a bit ridiculous. Um, and that is the capstone, that really optimistic and exciting and cheerful capstone. That is the capstone upon which the Lord of the Rings comes to a close. So what you're telling me is when George R.R. Martin is asking what is Aragorn's tax policy or did he pursue a agenda of orc genocide? <laughs> Uh, what you're telling me is Martin did not read the appendices because it sounds like he kind of did. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, my God. But that is like literally the thing, though, is like it is all of that is in the appendices for realsies. Like even the stuff about tax policy, right? Like we even get a throwaway line about the like tax policy of the uh, chiefs, the chieftains of Arnor. So like my man, George, you're clearly not doing anything else. Go read those appendices. You'll be fine. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I've had to defend that quote mostly because people use that as proof that George R. R. Martin does not like Tolkien or Lord of the Rings or that he's trying to shit on it, um, which I definitely don't think is the case. Anyone who's read his books would know that. Um, but I guess this wouldn't be a bad point to maybe discuss the Aragornification of Game of Thrones, <laughs> or rather, um, there are definitely several characters that um, are meant to be analogs to Aragorn in various ways. Um, I think the most obvious one and the one that actually matters to George is Jon Snow. Um, he is a ranger from the north, essentially. Um, he's kind of got that broodiness to him that we at least associate with film Aragorn. Um, and I really liked, um, you know, I didn't like all of Game of Thrones season eight, um, but I did like what the show did with that trope. And I do think this is kind of real to what George is going to do, where Jon Snow, who is, you know, secretly the king of um, the Seven Kingdoms because he is the son of Rhaegar Targaryen and Lyanna Stark. You know, he is the Song of Ice and Fire. Um, he's got all the bloodlines and things working for him. He's got a magic sword. Um, but then in the end, he chooses to just fuck off to the north and remain nameless. Um, that kind of feels in line with what I think George is doing with this character. Um, the way you talked about how uh, Tolkien didn't really have any interest in Aragorn um, actually makes me think a lot about Rob Stark. Um, not so much in that George does not have interest in Rob Stark, but the point was that Rob Stark was never meant to be the main character. Um, that's why, you know, he sacrificed at the altar of the Red Wedding. <laughs> um, and I think that's kind of the same way because George is not interested in that kind of King Arthur style, Arthuriana, like rising hero, at least in the kind of the traditional sense, like the son of a nobleman who rises up after his father is defeated kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I think he was trying, not interested in that, more interested in the Catelyn Stark angle of it, the King Arthur's mom kind of thing. <laughs> um, and then there's a third one, which I'm going to get into minor spoiler, or actually major spoilers for A Dance with Dragons, the fifth book. Um, this was not adapted for the television show at all. Um, but essentially, there is a side plot revealed where uh, Varys, um, the Master of Whispers in King's Landing, actually had secreted away um, the baby of Rhaegar Targaryen that was supposedly killed by Tywin Lannister's men during the sack of King's Landing. Oh, shit. Um, th this would be Aegon VI Targaryen. Um, and it turns out, or what is highly suspected, that this isn't actually the son of the king, but some bastard related to the Targaryens that Varys is essentially dressing up as the king. <laughs> um, basically, here's we're gonna we got a magic sword for you. Um, we're gonna wash your hair out blonde. Um, we're gonna make a good match with the door. Like he just basically like we picked a guy, we picked a baby up off the street, and basically like told him he was king um, and gave him all the things to make him think he was king. And then, you know, because Westeros is in such a shit show after Tywin Lannister dies, we can eventually present him as the returning conqueror, but more importantly, unifier. Um, and I think that is also going to end up being a play on the Aragorn um, trope. Uh, but because we are still short two books, <laughs> um, I can't say much because he was just introduced in the last book. Um, but he's definitely kind of setting up to be in the veins of where you kind of expect him to do the young prince becomes, you know, noble king kind of trope. Um, but it's almost certainly going to lead to uh, this kid basically giving the half of Westeros a pandemic of grace 
scale. Um, but I will save those <laughs> details from you for now. But um, I thought they were worth bringing up. I think John Snow's the obvious comparison, but because of so much of George's work is in conversation with things in Tolkien's world, um, I think Aragorn is definitely reflected through several characters. Um, if anybody out there is looking for a baby on the street um, to raise up and make a king, I'm baby. Please give me money and crowns and armies and stuff. I will do good things with it, I swear. So we can talk a little bit about the movies. Um, I think the funniest thing about the movies is that uh, the third movie is called Return of the King <laughs> and Aragorn like just vanishes for a big uh, chunk of it, um, which is fine by me. Um, this is actually, uh, we'll talk about it when we launch our Return of the King coverage proper with our next episode. But like Return of the King is really more kind of like Sam and Frodo and Gandalf's movie to me and Aragorn's just kind of there to do the perfunctory plot beats like oh shit we started talking about the kingdoms of men well I guess we got to pay that off somehow but um, it definitely seems they're more interested in Ian McKellen and Sean Astin than they are in Viggo Mortensen in that uh, the films, you know, I would say they do kind of do the more Luke Skywalker, Cambellian hero thing with Aragorn. Like I said, it really feels like he's just like a dirty, like scraggler on the side who hasn't done much, but has been kind of watching the Hobbits and the Shire when we meet him. Um, and then he kind of goes on to do most of his great deeds during it, um, which I also think like this Aragorn is more self-doubting, which is very much just in line with kind of Hollywood heroes. But I think that self-doubting, I wouldn't say works, but makes more sense when we don't know that Aragorn has been fighting for like 75 years alongside kings and doing great stuff and fighting pirates and tracking down golems. Like it would, it would be weird if he was doubting himself if he had already done millions of good things to his name. I'm not sure if that makes sense to you or not. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Um, I just think it's funny to think about um, how, like, Aragorn in, like, in the book is just meant to be old as shit, and how I think it would be really funny if they'd cast someone like Ian McKellen's age or slightly older to do this and then be, like, that self-doubting teenager and how incredibly funny that would have been and also how much I would have hated these movies if they'd done that. <laughs> oh, man. Um, and I do have to um, shout out the other M that I podcast with, uh, Emmett, over at uh, Nauticast ASOI. <laughs> Uh, when he on the Patreon did um, the um, In at the Prancing Pony episode, the actual book chapter, um, his comment on Vigo as Aragorn is like he loves him, you know, as an actor and performer, but he always thought Aragorn should look weirder, whereas Vigo pretty much just looks like a handsome stud. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's a ooh, it's a good point. So, like the 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 question of appearances in with the Numenorians is a really kind of tough one um, because. Um, because they're all kind of described in relation to one another, you have to like go and find who your like kind of absolute point is, like who your zero zero on the coordinate plane is. Um, and 
regrettably or not regrettably, if you do that, the, the person who it actually ends up being who we've got the most sort of appearance details for is actually Denethor. Um, and one of the things that is absolutely fucking unhinged and shows you how much Tolkien was kind of going back and forth on this question of kingship is the fact that Denethor is described as more beautiful than Aragorn. Um, and Denethor is like 90 some years old. He's old, old as balls. Um, and so like, there is this like question of, you know, Denethor is described as, as looking, as looking absolutely terrifying. Um, and, and, and yet still being incredibly beautiful. And so they, you know, it brings this kind of like almost Lovecraftian beauty, I guess, to the question. And so like, I think ultimately where I land is that like Aragorn should kind of look like Killian Murphy. <laughs> That's great. Um, I was actually thinking, um, Ralph Ineson, um, who is a character actor from a lot of stuff. Nice. He's definitely more gnarly looking. I think Cillian Murphy is still like kind of hot in his bony, yeah. facey way. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas Ralph Ineson more has that kind of like run down, like an old, you know, ragged Ranger of the North kind of look with that deep thunderous voice. Um, but yeah, Cillian Murphy, when he's not doing Oppenheimer, we should cast him in the eventual reboot of oh, The God. Lord of the Rings. Oh, God. Um, I just developed an ulcer thinking about that. Uh, speaking of uh, casting Aragorn, uh, Vigo Mortensen was not the first choice. Um, he was actually a replacement for Stuart Townsend, um, who has done stuff, but not stuff I'm super familiar <laughs> with. Um, it's And it's generally small-timey stuff, so... Um, I don't know if you've seen Stuart Townsend in anything or ever heard the name outside of he was Aragorn before Vigo. Um, I am certain I have. I just can't remember why. Um, I'm sure he was in something that I saw. It may have even been a play. I don't I feel bad for this guy. I'm not trying to dunk on him. I just don't think he like ever kind of actually ended up sticking his head above the parapet, really. So I can't remember. Mm hmm. And uh, Vigo basically took the role because his son was super into Lord of the Rings. Um, at the time, he wasn't as into it himself, um, which I think is going to be really funny because over like the course of these movies, like he basically came up with singing the Lay of Luthen in that one scene in the Fellowship Extended Edition. He would go on to become one of the best swordsmen the like stunt coordinator has ever seen. Uh, the film Swordmaster Bob Anderson said that um, just because essentially he like trained really hard at it. Um, he did most of his own stunts. <laughs> Um, what's it called? He actually got a black eye while surfing during Fellowship of the Ring. Um, so uh, a lot of the Moria scenes, I had not realized this, they're only really trying to show one side of his face um, and then using the darkness and the lighting and the setting to kind of cover it up, uh, which is kind of cool. Um, nice little analog to uh, Mark Hamill's motorcycle accident yeah. ahead of Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> Um, he, he obviously suffered the, uh, two broken toes. We, you know, everyone knows about that when he kicks the Uruk helmet, um, outside of Fangorn. Um, and then on top of the sword play and like learning perfect Elvish, um, he also got super into horses, um, and became like a master horse rider and like horse trainer in the process. So like Vigo Mortensen really used the Lord of the Rings to like boost up his resume, not just in terms of like, I did Lord of the Rings films, but also, <laughs> he also added like master, like Quenya speaker, master swordsman, master horseman, all of those uh, to his skill set, which is really cool. It must have been wild for his son to be like, this is the thing that I'm into. And then his father to be like, I will be more into it than you have ever been. <laughs> I will be the best possible version of this thing that you are super into. Um <laughs> And I guess just kind of talking about him generally, I, I, I really love him as Aragorn. Yeah. Um, and I love him most of the time, like doing his stuff. Um, I think he does the smaller parts best. 
um, like his small little moments with Frodo or when it's just kind of him having a two-hander with Gandalf and Elrond kind of shooting the shit. Um, And I also think he does the action stuff like really well, just as I discussed, because he's actually sit there doing that. I think during our two tower or the Helm's Deep coverage, I mentioned that he actually got to know all the stunt people he was fighting against. Um, and he keep, kept track of how often he killed each of the stunt people. So it seems like he was a real <laughs> glue guy on set. I really appreciate that. Um, and I would say the only like kind of drawback I have in terms of him is I don't think he's as good at the big stuff. No. Um, like the, and I mostly am thinking here of the big rallying speech at the end of Return of the King. <laughs> I feel like you almost hear his voice crack like he's going through puberty yeah, at one point. Like Karin and Andor. Um, yeah, exactly. And it's, and it's a little bit, it's also like kind of suffers in comparison because we've heard um, Bernard Hill give a couple banger like rallying cries yeah. at this point. And even Ian McKellen gets one right before the trolls bust in through the main gates. Um, and, you know, Ian McKellen has that big booming voice, which um, most people are going to falter in comparison. But I think that's like really the only like kind of weak stuff. But like the whole thing with him, like singing the song at his coronation, I think that was a Vigo ad lib. Um, the Lay of Luthan, like we mentioned, or Lay of Luthien, goddammit. <laughs> uh, fucking Andor has ruined me. So it, what we see here is like kind of the classic, like this actor invested himself into this stuff and actually brought his own insights, his own style and his own like ideas to it. And like kind of made the character his, which maybe even works better that Tolkien never really made the character his. Yeah. It gave Vigo a little bit of space to kind of obviously work around the kind of archetype that uh, like... Peter Jackson and company had kind of sketched out for him, but that Vigo was able to kind of decorate around the edges and give this character a real, like, I don't know, authenticity. And like the ca- character itself wouldn't, I think, be super memorable no. if not for the things Vigo is doing on screen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's totally true. I, I also think like, um, it is the small moments in which like like if you read like if you read the books right like i think aragorn just comes off as a massive cunt um, in all of the small moments like he just can't ever turn off mm-hmm. being a king and so it's just it's deeply off-putting like even if i didn't have sort of like a standard kind of vendetta against him um and i will say actually my vendetta against him does stem from the fact that i think like in those small moments he's just unbearable like i really don't like reading anything he says because he's just he's just a cunt just the whole way through. Um, and, and like those moments, I think are the moments in which like Aragorn sucks as a character, almost to the point of like being a turnoff for the whole series. Um, and so the fact that like the, those are the moments in which Vigo's Aragorn succeeds is I think really the saving grace. And and I, and I kind of feel like in a lot of ways I would not have as like, not to say that I'm fond at all of, of book Aragorn, but like, I don't think I would be even remotely as forgiving of book Aragorn as I, as I am. If it, if I didn't have Vigo's, Aragorn in my head when I was reading it. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Um, because I had read the books first after I had seen Fellowship of the Ring and The Two Towers. Like it was pretty much Vigo in yeah. my head doing that stuff. And that probably did probably why I didn't have such a strong reaction as you do to book Aragorn is because I'm still kind of papering over probably some of that softness with Vigo's performance. Um, because it is really great. Um, like I love his moments with uh, Frodo. Like when I think of great Aragorn moments, I literally just think of him at the end of Fellowship of the Ring, like clasping uh, Legolas and Gimli on 
uh, the shoulders and being like, not if we hold true to each other. Like, it's like those little things that like make me sing and like the little optimism in his eyes and maybe a little bit of bloodlust to go hunting orc. Um, I like, I really think he like pays those moments off really, really well. And he has a great uh, rapport with Ian McKellen. And I think that really works as well. Um, and also Bernard Hill and Bernard Hill is obviously a tremendous actor in his own right. But I think, um, a lot of why I love a lot of the Rohan stuff from about halfway through the two towers till the first third of Return of the King is just because it's like Bernard Hill and Vigo talking about stuff. Yeah. Um, and they're just so cool when they're doing that. Um, I also do think that uh, the introduction of Strider in mm. Fellowship of the Ring, mm. like the man sitting in the corner in the darkness, mm. is maybe one of the best character introductions of all time yep. on film. Yep. Um, it is so good. Um, it is very moody. Um, I love everything that's happening around it because this is also when Frodo's like kind of fumbling with the ring and it's kind of doing these like slow zoom ins on other people in the thing, but also zooming in on his uh, Aragorn's pipe weed and his eyes um, and just like the little jolt in Vigo when he sees the ring pop out of Frodo's hand. Like, I think it's all very, very tremendous stuff. And, um, I don't know. I just think it's the coolest shit ever. Yeah. Uh, what's a you person who has had this moment as your Twitter uh, <laughs> avatar many, many times in life? Um, yeah, I mean, the, like this moment for me, right? This is 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 Han Solo's entrance if Han were an aristocrat. And like, you know, it's not to like knock Han's entrance in, in A New Hope or to like knock Vigo's Aragorn, but like Han Solo's entrance in A New Hope is the coolest shit on earth and like it is impossible mm -hmm. to watch that scene and not be like Harrison Ford is the fucking man and Han Solo is the fucking man um because like everything about that is just it's just it's just cool it's what a hundred years of Americans trying to like create the idea the cultural concept of cool led to and and in so many ways it's never been been surpassed um and then there's this and this is this is fantasy uh han solo um but if han solo had a whole bunch of money behind him and 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 was in a world where like good things actually happened and followed through um it is just so fucking sleek it's mysterious it has that it's one of these moments where like the depth of the world, I think, really shines through in the movies, which doesn't often happen. Um, and it also does this thing where, you know, uh, Vigo uh, does, he's a fine looking guy. He doesn't look weird. Like, he's certainly not ugly, but he's really not like, he's definitely not in the top 100 best looking men in Hollywood. But mm -hmm. in that mm -hmm. scene, he's the hottest man who has ever walked the earth. Um, and it all comes down to this sense of like, when you have that like very clear bit, the bit works. <laughs> um, and so it's just like, it's just a phenomenal entrance and you just get so much more in that than like, I feel like if that had been even 2% less cool than it was, I don't think fellowship or even the rest of the trilogy would have held up quite in the way that it does, because that is really your kind of kick up the brackets moment of, right, this is for real. And like, this is going to be a fantastic movie. And I think part of what makes that entire kind of set piece work is that Aragorn gets to be a little more creepy and ominous in it, um, even with his hair just being wet from the rain. But when he like pulls it back, when the hobbits like, you know, what does Sam burst in and say? Uh, have at you long shanks or whatever the hell it is. Um, but like, you know, Aragorn's being kind of creepy is like, you guys aren't scared enough. And it's like, um, it's just like really cool because after the Nazgul arrive at the Prancing Pony and they stab the pillows and then Aragorn takes them into the wild, Aragorn kind of transforms more into like kind of that father protector figure. 
Um, but there's that first minutes when you're first really meeting Aragorn through the hobbits, through Frodo and Sam, um, that he gets to kind of heighten his creepiness and otherworldliness a little bit. Um, and I think Vigo plays really well into that, almost to the point where you almost wish they had characterized uh this Aragorn as a little creepier to give Vigo more moments like that going uh, through the rest of the films. Yeah. It, it feels for me like, um, you know, obviously this is his later work, but like in, in his work with David Cronenberg, I think he always gets this, this excellent sort of blend of like creepy, horrifying, weird characters who are also like, unfortunately, they're not maybe not necessarily sympathetic, but you're always kind of rooting for them. There's this element of charisma in almost all of his characters that is that, that I don't mean like attractive in the sensual like the sexual sense, but I mean like it is it he he tends to play these characters that are attractive. Like you want to watch them, you want to root for them, or maybe don't want to root for them, but you want to struggle with yourself over why you are or aren't rooting for them. Um, and you know that's a that's really kind of that's the strong point of his his charisma. Um, and it's it's it, it was really sort of a definitional part of his relationship to to David Cronenberg. Um, I would love to see that kind of maturity. Um, in in his Aragorn because I think that would certainly be like a more kind of quote unquote book accurate um um portrayal of Aragorn. I guess in that like. Aragorn is incredibly off-putting in the books. Like he is just a cunt, and I think if you have like uh, any sort of anti-monarchical political leanings, it's really hard to like read anything that Aragorn says to anyone and be like, "Yeah, this is a nice guy," because because he's just condescending and and it oftentimes quite cruel. Um, but I think that like Cronenberg. Vigo, <laughs> the the Vigo that comes out when he's with David Cronenberg could absolutely portray that in like a really convincing and in a really sort of compelling way. Um, and it's not to say that like I fault Vigo's performance in The Lord of the Rings because like at the time Peter Jackson was just a Sam Raimi impersonator with like an even smaller budget. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, context is important there. But like it would have been nice like it, it, to imagine this kind of world in which that kind of mature, more refined, sort of more Merlot rather than um, um, uh, you know, uh, Captain Morgan's um, uh, Vigo Mortensen comes out and this role is Aragorn. Now I can defend Jackson and just say he wasn't interested in doing much with Aragorn, just like Tolkien, so he was being true to the text. Um, <laughs> so enough. just like kind of doing standard hero's <laughs> journey bullshit just kind of worked for him. Um, I think the moment that best exemplifies how you were talking about how like in the small moments, uh, Aragorn is obnoxious in the books, um, I think about their arrival at Edoras in the Two Towers and when they're handing over the weapons um, and uh, Aragorn is just like not willing to hand over Narsil or Anduril because he already has it in the books at this point. He's like, don't make me hand over the sword, man. This is like the sword of the king. It's like the sword, man. I am not giving it to you. And he's like just kind of a real dick about it at the gates. Whereas in the you know movie, he doesn't have the sword, so it's no big deal. So instead they make it a little bit about how he has like 80 knives on him hidden like in his hair and stuff. Yeah. Um, and then he gets to share a little wink with Gandalf. Um, so obviously they're doing a different tact with the character. They're obviously putting him on a different track and a more likable track. Um, but you can see how, um, how I, I like now I can really picture like this is, you know, nice Aragorn. And then this is the Dick Aragorn of the books. Who's obsessed with his fucking sword. Um, <laughs> it feels like a euphemism. Freud somewhere <laughs> spinning. Oh, all, all, all warriors are. Um, so let's, let's actually talk about, uh, Viggo Mortensen himself. Um, cause I think he's a total Chad. Uh, we got a Dana, he's a Danish American born on October 20th, 1958 in Waterton, New York. 
Um, his father was Danish and his mom was American. Um, he moved around quite a bit at a young age. Um, he start, he went to Venezuela, then later to Denmark, and then back to Argentina, and he would grow up there what? for a while. Um, he came back to the U.S. for uh, university, um, or possibly Canada, uh, St. Lawrence U. I don't know exactly where that is. Um, I just think of St. Lawrence Straits that we had to learn connected the Atlantic to the Great Lakes <laughs> um, back in like fourth grade geography. Um, but anyways, he got a degree in Spanish and poli-sci. Um, and then he uh, actually moved to Europe where he drove trucks and sold flowers for a few years um, before eventually uh, making it into uh, the movie and film industry in like the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, so his early career, um, I'm actually not super familiar with a lot of his pre-Lord of the Rings stuff. Um, but like one thing I am very familiar with is Peter Weir's Witness, which is a fantastic, fantastic movie. If you have not seen it, um, starring Harrison Ford, um, and then Vigo plays an Amish person in that. And he was basically cast because Weir went on record and said Vigo had a good looking Amish face. Um, so I don't know if there's anything to take from that. Um, his other kind of minor and supporting roles in the late eighties and nineties, he was a guest star on Miami Vice. He was in Portrait of a Lady, the Jane Campion movie, uh, Young Guns 2, uh, Carlito's Way, Crimson Tide, G.I. Jane, uh, which was, you know, the source of the Chris Rock joke that led uh, Will Smith to come up on stage and slap him oh, a year and a half ago on the Oscars. <laughs> so uh, Viggo Mortensen has some connection to that. Uh, Daylight, A Perfect Murder, uh, Gus Van Sant, Psycho Remake uh, with Vince Vaughn. Um, and then the one that um, I did not know was that he was Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw <laughs> Massacre 3. What on earth? <laughs> kind, of, kind of insane, uh, which is fun. It's fun to think like one of my favorite actors was just fucking Leatherface and <laughs> that they're Texas Chainsaw That is Texas the Lord Chainsaw of the Rings movie. as told by the orcs. <laughs> oh my God. Now I have to rewatch that one. <laughs> um, so uh, following The Lord of the Rings, um, his biggest uh, kind of stuff has mostly been doing stuff with uh, David Cronenberg, um, including History of Violence, Eastern Promises, A Dangerous Method, and Crimes of the Future, I believe, which was the one that came out last year. Um, he also did Hidalgo, which I think was a Disney attempt to add a blockbuster trying to capitalize on... Um, kind of Viggo Mortensen's height of his power because I think this was coming right off of uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, I did not see it. It seemed like it got pretty middling reviews. Uh, Vigo good in it, but it's just kind of like too long and too overwrought to be like super enjoyable. But I'm guessing uh, Vigo did all his horse tricks and horse riding for this movie, so I'm guessing he had a pretty good time. Um, so <laughs> I am, you know, good with that. Um, he also did a documentary called Reclaiming the Blade, which I should have taken more notes on because I don't know what that's actually about, but I'm going to pretend it's about being Aragorn and like all the sword fighting and stuff he did um, in that in the Lord of the Rings films. Um, he was also uh, one of the narrators in a Howard Zinn, uh, like kind of documentary <laughs> adaptation of The People Speak, uh, which is really cool. Uh, it does seem like uh, Vigo on the whole is pretty based politically yeah. or at least more than bog, uh, much further better than like kind of bog standard liberal um, that you kind of associate with a lot of Hollywood actors. Um, he definitely appears to be a Bernie guy. I think he got some flack for saying he would not vote for Hillary Clinton, which, <laughs> you know, makes my heart sing. I love him even more. Uh, Vigo innocent, all that stuff. Uh, and then he was also in uh, an adaptation of The Road, um, Rip Cormac McCarthy, who just recently passed as of this recording. Um, and he played 
the man uh, for anyone who's familiar with the road he played the man um and then kind of in the last you know handful of years um he got a lot of acclaim for the kind of critically acclaimed but probably should have been maligned green book dog shit um, movie. but yeah um i am not gonna ever watch that movie but i am sure he's whatever in it uh <laughs> captain fantastic um, and then, uh, what's it called? He, uh, was in crimes of the future, which I'll let Emily probably speak to in a little bit and probably speak to all of his Cronenberg stuff here in a second. And then he directed the movie falling in 2020, which I know nothing else about. Um, I think captain fantastic is the one where he is, uh, he and his family have been living as Maoists or something. And then his son is like, comes out as a Trotskyist. It, there's something about this. I see it all the time on Twitter, and I'm like, I need to watch this movie because this combines several of my favorite things, which is Trotsky and also Viggo Mortensen. And yeah, I've never watched it, but I will. Um, instead, I spend my time watching <laughs> David Cronenberg's movies, um, which are well worth watching, by the way. Um, but one of the things that I find kind of interesting is, is Cronenberg has, as his muses, typically men. Um, and um, his Cronenberg's men, I think, if that's not already a... Um, a thing a, a, a label in in reality that i'm going to desperately try and make it one but like cronenberg's men have basically since the start of his career had this really interesting thing where they are men who look like they should be very manly men like they are men who like if you had a tick box of like what does the like like patriarchal ideal of a man look like what are the like items on the list like these men tend to f check all of those boxes they're like strong they're like tall they're like muscular i mean vigo's not tall but like you know they're muscular they have these chiseled jaws they they look like x y and z things um and cronenberg's men all tend to be that but then they also like when they open their mouths they all tend to have this like really intense femininity about them like and it, it is simultaneously i guess like a femininity and also like a non-masculine vulnerability without getting too far into like the gender studies of it all um but there are these men who seem like they should be really tough and and rough and ma manly and burly and and instead have this like um almost heart-stopping kind of femininity about them um and i think that is like it's it's great in the types of more movies that that that, that david Cronenberg is doing is is super effective um Crimes of the Future, I think, is one of these things where, like, Cronenberg has a very specific reputation, um, and a lot of that is earned. Um, but I think Crimes of the Future is a very, like, I genuinely mean this very palatable movie. Like, I don't think it's actually that rough um, in terms of, like, the body horror of it all. And it's something that I think, like, it's, it's, it's not mid. Like, it's definitely not his best, but, like, his best are, like, catastrophically good. Um, but it's, mm -hmm. like, it's a very kind of calm and sedate um Cronenberg I think everyone should watch it I think it's fantastic but that kind of that role that sort of like should be aggressively masculine should be almost toxic toxically masculine and yet not quite reaching those heights those those patriarchal requirements and um, that is something so fascinating about Vigo in that of all of Cronenberg's men and also I think you know as we talk about extensively on this podcast like very crucial to what masculinity looks like in the Lord of the Rings films as well. And again, one of these moments where I feel like if there had been a bit more of like an actor's kind of director instead of like a big picture director um, on this film, you might have gotten a bit more of that out in this character of Aragorn, like this conflict of like, what is um, the masculine king versus like, what is this kind of like necessary subversion that is to be human that, that demands that you don't kind of hold yourself entirely to what like patriarchy expects of you. Um, 
And it's not in Lord of the Rings. It's not in the Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. It is, however, in the many films of David Cronenberg. Um, if you haven't seen any of them, I would start with Crimes of the Future. That's a very good like on-ramp. Um, I would then watch Videodrome, which has no Viggo Mortensen in it, but is absolutely now my favorite movie ever. <laughs> um, so so get into that. But I think also just keep in mind as you're looking at that, like that, the, uh, watching these movies, that kind of gender duality that's going on in so many of of, of Cronenberg's le- leading men in so many ways epitomized by Viggo Mortensen. You know, one thing we can probably debate, maybe we'll do it on a different when we don't have a discussion topic for an episode. Um, who has had the most interesting post Lord of the Rings career out of the cast? Um, I think it basically comes down to Vigo, Elijah Wood, and Carl Urban. Yeah. Um, but I would actually kind of be interested because Elijah has also kind of done um, the whole kind of Daniel Radcliffe's thing where he's only in like super weird things yeah. now. Uh, and seems to be like a pretty cool dude on top of that, you know, with his little mustache and scooter. Um, <laughs> but um, I do think those are kind of like the three that really have like a truly sustained and long lasting like career following um, Lord of the Rings. Not that the others haven't, you know, Ian McKellen's getting up there in age and I'm pretty sure making the Hobbit kind of broke him. Yep. Um, but he's also basically like the biggest things he's done has been the Hobbit and the X-Men movies yep. in terms of like on the big screen. Um, so it, it is something interesting. Maybe we'll table that one for later, but Vigo is definitely the guy who seems to be really doing stuff and like doing work he likes, uh, post, uh, the Lord of the Rings films. Yeah. Not slowed by the weirdness of the industry. <laughs> um, but, and like, it's not just movies actually. He's actually both a writer and a poet in his free time, which is really cool. Um, and also an abstract painter. Um, if you've seen the movie, A Perfect Murder, uh, which is um, in the genre of a mid '90s Michael Douglas like sexy romance thrillers. Um, I don't know. Michael Douglas had like three of them at this point. He was like the world's <laughs> hottest man. That's probably how he bagged Catherine Zeta Jones. Uh, but in but in that story, many of the paintings that his character has are his own paintings, um, which is cool. That that kind of makes it onto screen. Uh, and then he's. Uh, written a lot of poems, stories, and has done a lot of translation work for like indigenous groups in South America. Um, again, going back to the fact that he spent a lot of his time growing up in Venezuela and Argentina. Uh, and then he also does a lot of books to like kind of go with photography, like, you know, uh, photos of this world, especially of nature of indigenous groups. And he kind of does some writing to go alongside with that. He works with anthropologists on this shit. Damn. So he's like very invested in all this stuff. And he even uh, founded his own publishing company, uh, the Percival Press. Um, which I don't know a lot about, but I think is kind of like an avenue for indigenous artists to kind of like spread their poetry, their writings and all that kind of stuff, which again, seems like literally the coolest thing a person could do with fame and wealth. Yes. He also gave a grand to Sinn Féin and supports the Catalans and because his wife, his current or partner is Catalonian and supports them in their struggle against the Spanish state. So 10 out of 10, uh, everyone else be more like him. Man, we got really lucky if we got Vigo and Sean Bean being just like the absolute most based guys <laughs> imaginable. Um, and everyone else, this is all just to cancel out John Reese Davies. He's like such a big Tory that every other member of the fellowship has to be like insanely left wing. And they, it seems to be mostly, mostly are, yep. mostly are. There's a reason why he did not get the tattoo with the rest of them. I'm just saying. 
And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cat, my pod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod, which goes towards this and allows us to do bonus stuff sometimes, maybe, who knows? <laughs> We're kind of unsure where we are with the Patreon these days. <laughs> I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF, where we recently just covered The Red Wedding for our 200th episode. So if you're looking to jump on with the Song of Ice and Fire podcast, it sounds like a great place to do it. Hell yeah. Um, I've been Emily, also known as, I guess we'll do Blue Sky, uh, also known as C. Emily Play on Blue Sky, because presumably Twitter will be dead by the time this one comes out. Um, that is where I will be, since Blue Sky is a much nicer place. Just kidding. Um, I will be swirling Aragorn so hard in the waters of Lothlorien that he wakes up and has to fully lean into sex is the new surgery. Surgery is the new sex in Crimes of the Future. <laughs> that was only somewhat unhinged. <laughs> Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ithraglir and Drithion, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, in my best Vigo Mortensen, I would have followed you. Wait, no, shit, Sean Bean said that. Never mind. <laughs> Anyways, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. Uh.